If you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11, the great Christ hymn. What is the most important question in all of the earth? The one question that rises above all other questions. I would submit to you that, at least for today, I think that question is, who is Jesus? Jesus articulated well when he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Who is he? Jesus, talking to those who walked with him, responded and said, some say that you are John the Baptist. You are a person who is called a wild reed that cannot be controlled. You are you are someone that does not fit into the normal systems. You are just uncontrollable. Jesus, that's who some people say that you are. Others say that you are Elijah or Jeremiah, that you are a prophet. Is Jesus merely another John the Baptist or an Elijah or a Jeremiah? Jesus changes the question to his disciples and makes it personal to them, and he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? I submit to you that that is the most important question any one of us can answer is who do we say that Jesus is for eternity hangs in the balance to the way we respond to that particular question. So today I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just some wild uncontrollable figure like John the Baptist? Is he merely a prophet? as some other religions might contend, or is he, as some authors have put forward, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Is he the Son of God? Is he truly God? Today we are talking about the fact that we believe that Jesus is God's Son. We are talking about what we would call Christology or the doctrine of Christ. And you need to know as you are turning to Philippians 2 that there are four main texts that should come to mind immediately as you think about the doctrine of Christ, these four main passages in the New Testament that lay out for us our philosophy of Christ, it's John 1, 1 through 18, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which we'll look at this morning, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Of course, other passages play into our understanding of Jesus, but these are your four main Christological passages in the New Testament. So if you want to learn, if you want to study, if you want to look more at what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is, some of the claims, I would urge you to start with these passages. And today we'll look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I include 5 in this particular section, although 6 through 11 is usually counted to be what's called the Christ hymn. It's, as some have articulated that perhaps this was a hymn sung in the early church that Paul included here in his letter. But verse 5 is an important verse because it is a transition verse out of chapter 2 where Paul is talking to the Philippians and he is saying to them, have this mind, have the same mind. Do not do things from selfish conceit or ambition, but consider others better than yourself. And in verse 5, he transitions and says, this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and he gives us the ultimate illustration of humility or selflessness when he talks about Jesus in verses 6 through 11. In verses 6 through 11, as we read through those, as we look at those, you'll see first the humiliation of Jesus, and then you'll see the exaltation of Jesus. 
So out of honor for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear Lord, today as we look at this passage, I pray that we would just catch a small glimpse of who you are in your glory. Lord, that we would appreciate how you humbled yourself. And Lord, that we would come to the realization that you are Lord and that we are not. God, we are sinful men and women who plead to the mercy of the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So in preparing you for the message today, we have two main points. We have the introduction there in verse 5, but we have the humiliation of Jesus, the humility of Jesus in verses 6 through 8. In that section, we're going to spend a lot more time on point number one than point number two. So if you're watching your mental clock as we're flowing through, we'll spend the majority of our time on our first point because it talks about the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, that he is fully divine, that he is fully human. So we'll talk about our Christology there in point number one. And then we'll move to point number two, which is the exaltation of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. So we begin with our first point, the humility of Jesus, verses 6 through 8. You see here, as it talks about this mind, it gives us the ultimate example. And in verse 6, Paul dives right in here with the divine nature of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, and you see from that he was in the form of God, that he existed as God, the word form there, morph. It doesn't represent what we might think of. Uh, You know, I I like to watch the Avengers. I like to watch uh, different superhero shows of sorts. And we see in those shows sometimes shape shifters or things that will take on the form of something else, but their true identity is still different. What this means is not that he just has taken on an outward form that is not an inward existence or an inward being, but what this means is that it begins by telling us that he was God. He was truly and fully expressed as the idea of being God. It's not an external experience, but it pictures a pre-existence Christ clothed in all that it means to be deity, all that it means to be God. He was in the form of God. Now, we notice here also somewhat of a contrast between Adam, the first Adam, and Christ, the second Adam, in that we see the first Adam's sin was trying to grasp something that he could not attain. He wanted to understand the mind of God and right from wrong, and he reached out and grasped what had been forbidden. And yet we see in the second Adam here in Christ, he didn't need to grasp at something. He already was God. And instead of grasping at something that he could not attain, he laid it aside and humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And we see a contrasting image here. Philippians 2.6 has been an important passage throughout church history. 
It has refuted the views of people like Arius who would say there was a time when the sun was not, that he was the first of all created beings. And others would come along and say, no, look at Philippians 2, 6, where it talks about the fact that he was in the form of God, that along with other passages Athanasius would respond that salvation requires a divine savior. If Jesus is not God, if he is not divine, he cannot be our savior. Throughout history, we have prayed to Jesus. If Jesus is not divine, then praying to Jesus as though he is God is idolatry. We understand that. The Council of Nicaea in 325 settled the issue of who God was for church history, and we look back upon them And we see that over 2,000 years of conservative scholarship has said that Jesus is God and we are thankful for that affirmation. We look at what the scripture says. We understand that it too says that that Jesus is fully divine. Some of the things we would wanna look at to to prove that or to make those determinations would be that first, scripture makes direct claims. I have a list of verses on here. I'm not gonna go through all of those verses for you this morning. If you wanna write down a few of them and look at them later, feel free to do so. But scripture makes direct claims that Jesus is God. It's all throughout the New Testament. As you read your Bible, you understand that Jesus claimed to be God, that the scriptures claimed that Jesus was God. As you read through it, even in passing notations, you understand there are divine prerogatives that Jesus assumes. He taught as one who had authority. He taught as the authority. He did not teach as the normal teachers taught. He forgave sins. He forgave sins at the same time that he was doing miracles just so he could show everybody else that he was who he claimed to be. And he would ask them questions like, which is easier to say that you forgive sins or take up your bed and walk? Jesus demonstrated that he was God by the way he acted, by the way he made claims. He claimed lordship over the Sabbath. He received worship. He could not have received worship to himself if he were not claiming to be God. If he were merely a prophet, if he was not truly divine and he allowed others to worship him, that would be idolatry. And so you see in the disciples, when others would bow down to worship them, they would say, no, don't worship me. I'm a mere man just like you are. We worship God together. Jesus allowed worship of him. He understood that he was claiming to be God. All of these prerogatives belong to God. He did divine works. The miracles that Jesus performed testified to his deity. He is identified as the creator and the sustainer. Jesus is the one who was so calm that he would go to sleep on a boat, demonstrating his humanity and that he was tired. And yet when the wind and the waves got too high and began to concern the disciples, he would wake up and command even the winds and the waves to stop, demonstrating his full divinity. There are other strong claims also to his deity. A few verses that I will point out for you. John 8, 58, when Jesus stated that before Abraham was, I am. Think about the implications of the listener of the day when they're talking about Father Abraham, the revered Father Abraham of the Old Testament. And Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am, the I am, the great I am from Moses and the burning bush all throughout the Old Testament where he says, I am, this is exactly who you should say. They understood what Jesus was claiming. Many times the Pharisees and others would pick up stones to stone Jesus because they understood the claims he was making. He was claiming to be fully divine. He was claiming to be God. Revelation twenty two thirteen 13 
says that Jesus claims he is the Alpha and the Omega. In Revelation 1.8, God has said, the God the Father has said that he is the Alpha and the Omega. There is a oneness here, and we have already looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, but my point to you today is to emphasize to you that Jesus is God. He claims to be divine and to give you arguments as you discuss with other people how to demonstrate that he is God. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. In John 20, 28, that doubting Thomas comes back up. He doesn't believe. He has doubts in his heart. He sees Jesus. Jesus says, put your, put your fingers in. Put your fist in my side. Thomas responds to him and answers, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus were not God, at that moment in time, he should have looked at Thomas and he should have said, no, Thomas, I'm just a human like you. We worship God. But Jesus received that worship from Thomas when he said, my Lord and my God. He accepted that. And in fact, he said, blessed are those who have not seen and who believe. He affirmed him in the declaration that Jesus was Lord and God. Now, I'm spending time this morning making the case for some of you. You say this is obvious. Jesus is God. But if it's obvious to us that Jesus is God, then it affects the way we live our life and what we believe and how we interact, our passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus is the God man who came to this earth to die for our sins, then any religion, any cult that does not believe Jesus is God leads people directly to hell. We have the truth that leads people to a relationship with God the Father. If Jesus is who he said he is, that should be our one consuming passion in life is to tell others about God who came in the flesh and died for our sins, substituted himself on our behalf on the cross. Is that your consuming passion? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Does that dominate every aspect of your life or do you just take it for granted? Jesus is God. It's another cultural issue that arises. It arises about every two or three years, it seems. It comes up over and over again. You have heard it. You will hear about it again. And people will say things like, does Islam and Christianity worship the same God? The answer to that question, I have some verses for you on the screen, but the answer to that question is a resounding no. To think about does Islam and Christianity worship the same God, you have to answer the question, can you truly worship the Father and reject Jesus Christ? Now, we understand that you have the Jewish faith, that you have the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, and you have Christianity that point back to Abraham and that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You understand the historic connection, but you also understand that's where the connection ends As we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, we believe that Jesus is God and we believe in salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did alone on the cross. And you ask yourself the question as you seek to answer, does Islam and Christianity worship the same God? Can you serve God the Father and reject Jesus the Son? And John 8 19 says this, you know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 1 John 2.23 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
Luke 10, 16 indicates that one who rejects me, Jesus, rejects him who sent me, the Father. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Does Islam and Christianity worship the same God? No. You cannot worship the God of Christianity without worshiping Jesus as God. And if you reject Jesus, you reject the God of Christianity. Suppose one night I scheduled for a babysitter to come and I decided I wanted to go out on a date with my wife. And just for the fun of it, I picked her up at the front door and and opened the car door and she gets in and I take her out to a nice restaurant and we go out to a nice restaurant and I sit there across the table from my wife and I reach across and I grab her hand and I look at her and I say to her, you know, honey, I just love your long flowing blonde hair. Some of you chuckle because my wife is sitting down here in the front row and some of you who have been here for a couple of years know that I really like dark hair. Praise be to God that my wife has dark hair and it's long and it's flowing, but it's dark. No offense to any blinds in the room. God designed me to like dark hair and he designed us to be together. We're good with that. But if I were to look at her and I were to continue on and I were to say to her, you know, I really like the fact that you're short. My wife's not short. I really like the fact that you're an introvert. My wife is not an introvert. (laughs) That would be me of the family. And I began to describe all these things, and my wife looked at me across the table. What do you think she would say to me? A puzzled look on her face. She might say something like, What have you been smoking? (laughs) What was in that drink you ordered? Did you hit your head really hard at work today? Have you been trying those hoverboards or something? I don't know, something. (laughs) Because her response to me would be, that's not me that you're describing. I can't create in my own mind this image that doesn't exist. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I can't describe a God that exists in my mind that is not the God revealed in the word of Scripture and it be the one true God. I can't come up with what I want God to look like because then it's an idol that is within my mind. It is not the God revealed by the Holy Scriptures. And as much as we may want other religions and other beliefs to worship the same God as we do, as much as we may desire that they go to heaven. The truth is that that is gospel deception for us to tell them that they're going to get to heaven through their religion. And for us to love them and for us to love God, we must compassionately, clearly articulate to them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man gets to the Father but by him. That's our obligation. And you say it's not easy to talk to somebody of the Islamic faith, to talk to a Muslim, to talk to a Jewish person and to tell them we believe that their religion is sending them to hell, but it is the honest thing for us to do. It is the honest thing for us to plead with them, to consider the word of God and who God has revealed that he is, to tell them that Jesus is the way.
That the scriptures tell us there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus Christ. It is not loving. It is not compassionate for us to allow friends and family and those we encounter to think they're okay as they are on the road to hell. This is not a theological video game where we hit reset, eternity hangs in the balance, and we must take these questions seriously. He was in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped because he already had it. And so Jesus, it says, made himself nothing. And here there's a great controversy we don't have time to get into on the kenosis theory of of what does this mean. But let me just caution you that when it says he made himself nothing, don't read into that text that he set aside his divinity because then you have Christological problems. It means that what he did was he humbled himself to the point of coming as a man to take on humanity. He humbled himself in a way that he didn't use his divine attributes while he was here on this earth, at least not in every situation, in every case. He made himself nothing, taking on the form and there the word morphe again as a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he came, and when he came to this earth, he came as a man. Now, some throughout church history would say that Jesus only appeared to be man, but he was really divine. But here in this passage, we see the combining of him being fully divine and fully human and that going together. And so our next point of emphasis is that Jesus was fully human. Think about this. Jesus, fully God, has everything. He is God. He has it all, and Jesus humbles himself to become a baby in a manger, born through a virgin conception, born to the Virgin Mary, to become a human, a baby. We've all seen babies. Babies cry when they're hungry. Babies make messes. Babies don't take care of themselves. To think of God who became a baby, and as he walked on this earth, John 4, 6 tells us he became tired. So when you are tired from studies or from working out or from long runs, you understand that Jesus knows what it feels like to be tired. He too was tired. He became thirsty, John 19, 28 tells us. He was hungry, Matthew 4, 2 tells us. So as you are, some of you even maybe now enjoying hunger pains, waiting on lunch to come in a little while, you understand that Jesus can identify with the fact that you are tired, that you are thirsty, that you are hungry when midterms and when papers and when finals and when all the pressure of life comes along. We have a Savior that didn't just stay up there, but he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He came and became fully man so that he could identify with all of our temptations, with all of our weaknesses. He died. For our behalf, he died. Jesus had a human mind. Luke 2.52 tells us that he increased in wisdom and stature. His soul was troubled, as was his spirit. He felt emotions and sorrow. The scriptures tell us of when he marveled and when he wept. And when those heartbreaks come your way and when you're wondering who can understand how I feel and how I'm affected at this particular moment, Jesus can Where do you turn in those moments? You turn to Jesus. Jesus can understand. Jesus can identify with our struggles. Jesus was fully human. And Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. 
here we see that God understands. So in the course of any given semester, there are students who are struggling. There are faculty and staff who are going through pains. And all of us at times are wondering, does anybody understand how I feel? Can anybody relate to how I feel? And I want to say to you this morning, Jesus can. He understands. He is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and with our temptations. And so what do we do when we feel most alone? We turn to God's word. We turn to Jesus. That should be our first instinct. Here it says he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And in verse eight, it says being found in human form, he humbled himself. Twice here we see the humility. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing, but he humbled himself to obedience, to the becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And, and we read this and we think about the cross and we think about it with, with grand glorious terms about the cross. We, some of you even wear crosses around your neck. How many of you have a cross on this morning? Several of you looking around have hands up with crosses on this morning. We look at that as a badge of honor, but in this day and time, cross was the four-letter word. At least in Latin, it was a four-letter word. I know it's five in English, but in Latin, it was a four-letter word. This four-letter word was considered an obscenity not to be mentioned in conversation. You didn't talk about this. You don't talk about things of that nature. That's not appropriate dinner talk. It's not table talk. When a man was sentenced to death, crucifixion was considered an archaic form that was used to humiliate somebody. It was the vile form of punishment. It was the most shameful instrument of torture. And yet Paul takes that and flips it around when he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord. Here, Jesus, the glorious God on high, humbled himself to become a man and as a man became obedient and obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death possible. The person who had the highest possible position, who had everything, who did not consider all of that to be grass, but instead he looked at this and said, I will lay it aside. I will become a servant. I will humble myself. That Jesus loves you so much. He loves me so much. He gave it all up and came to this life in a baby, in a manger. He didn't come as a prince in a palace. He doesn't come to be rich. He came to serve. He came to humble himself. And he went to a cross. And he hung naked. And people spit at him. And people cursed at him. And they made fun of him. And they made a crown of thorns to place it on his head to say, yeah, sure, you're the king of the Jews. They killed him put him in a tomb. Jesus could have called down legions of angels at any moment in time and destroyed everybody. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have spoken a word. He could have done anything and taken us all out. And yet he loved us so much that he humbled himself to die humiliating death for me and for you. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the God of the universe who's your high priest if you've repented and trusted in him. The text doesn't stop there, thank goodness. It continues on in verse nine and we see the exaltation of Jesus. You know, Jesus humbled himself and I would submit to you that we are probably most like Jesus when we humble ourselves. When we have this mind that Paul was talking about in 2.5, 
when we have the mind to go and do missionary work, where we give up the comforts of this life to go to a place where we may experience torture, we may be spit upon, when we identify with another people, perhaps that's when we're most like Jesus, when we humble ourselves, when we, when we identify with others, when we relate with them, when we love and, and have humility like that, perhaps that's when we're most like Jesus. Jesus did that in and his Matthew 23, 11 illustration of his own words comes true when he says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As in verse nine, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. You see that God is the actor in this. God is the subject who highly exalts Jesus and he bestows on him the name that is above every name. It doesn't tell us clearly what that name is, but that name is likely not Jesus, not his earthly name. That name is likely Lord Because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The text is not clear, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text when he is given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What does it mean that every knee should bow? It means that every knee in heaven, all of the angels, it means that every knee on earth, all of us, it means that every knee under the earth, perhaps the demons or those who were lost or those who have died, every single person, every angel, every being, everything will one day bow down before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Confess means to acknowledge, to affirm, or to agree with, and everyone will eventually affirm Jesus's lordship. They may do so willingly, They may do so with great joy in their heart. They may do so with reluctance. They may do so with rebellion. But even those who despise Christ, they will confess. They will bow. They will understand that Jesus is Lord. I have a slide for you here that has the Chalcedonian formulation. In this formulation, which is a historic formulation, what you're going to see them trying to do is trying to balance the fact that Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is fully man and that his full natures are in one person. It's not divisible. It avoids the the heresy that Nestorius had where he separated the natures. You'll see that it's trying to accomplish a lot here in one statement. So I just want to read it to you for history's sake. This is the Chalcedonian formulation as it's often referred to or the Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon in 8451. It says, we then, following the Holy Father's All with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. He's fully God, he's fully man. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, fully God, fully man again. You see what they're after here. And all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all the ages of the Father according to the Godhead in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather by the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. So it's saying he's one individual. You can't separate it, but it's not mished together so that it forms a tertium quid or a third thing. It's one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same son, only begotten God the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, 
and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. The creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. We look first when we form our theology of what Scripture says, but it is helpful also for us to look back at how history has interpreted Scripture so that we can lean upon the understanding of 2,000 years of bright minds who have sought to interpret Scripture faithfully. And then we form our theological positions, and here we see that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is our Savior. So how does that apply to us? What does that mean for us? I have a few points here that I want to make to you that I think this means for us. The incarnation to the cross. What is discussed in Philippians chapter 2, that God became a baby. He became a man. He became flesh. He humbled himself to obedience and to the cross is the greatest act of love and identification ever known. Have you ever felt like nobody loves you? Have you ever felt like nobody understood you? I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you. He loves you with all of your quirks, with all of your weirdness, with all of the things that you do that are awkward and goofy. Jesus loves you with all of it. Others may look around at you and you may think, oh, they think I'm weird. You're probably right. (laughs) But Jesus loves you unconditionally, completely, and fully. And so when you look for that satisfaction, you don't look for that satisfaction by running into the arms of someone else so that they will accept you because you were created in the image of God and your maker loves you unconditionally and identified with you and died for you. And that is enough. We find our satisfaction. We find our worth. We find it in Christ and in Christ alone. That is all we need. We need Jesus, nothing more. Not Jesus plus, we need Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and was exalted. It's hard. It's so hard for us that we even find ways to be prideful in our humility. We do something that's humble and then we reflect upon the humble act that we did and we get proud about the fact that we were humble. Or or maybe that's just me, but it happens. I would say to you that we should follow the lead of our Lord Jesus Christ and humble ourselves, have this mind, that was in Christ Jesus, that we consider others better than ourselves. We don't look at our own giftings and think that we are above others, but we humble ourselves because the Bible teaches us if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. And the Bible teaches us that if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. I would much rather humble myself and have God exalt me than be prideful and arrogant and have God humble me and humiliate me in front of others. And so learn the spiritual lesson, learn it sooner rather than later that we should humble ourselves so that God will exalt us. These verses confirm who Jesus is. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is not a lunatic. Jesus is Lord. Now make no mistake about this. You cannot say that Jesus was just a good person. Because Jesus claimed to be God. If he is not God, he is deceiving others. He is a liar and a deceiver and we should reject him fully. He is not a good person. If he is a lunatic, if he is out of his mind, if he is crazy, then we should reject him because he is crazy and a lunatic. The only option you have is to say that Jesus was a liar, Jesus was a lunatic, or Jesus was who he said he was. He was Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that changes everything. What's the most important question? Who is Jesus? What's the question that will matter on the day that you stand before God? Who is Jesus? And have you repented and put your faith in him? 
We have a Savior who is humble, who understands our temptations, our weaknesses, who is victorious. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that our God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. That is the greatest message in all of the world. It is the gospel truth. It is the message that we have been commissioned to be ambassadors for. Not with a haughty spirit, not with pridefulness, not with arrogance, it's with humility. We are commissioned to take the message of the truth to the ends of the earth so that others who do not know about Jesus, so that others who have been deceived by false religions, perhaps even uh, created by the devil in order to deceive others, for those who are caught and trapped in their darkness, we take them the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. That is what we are here to do. We understand that the story of the Bible is the story of one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And in that prophecy, then he was born. And if Jesus was born, that is the greatest thing in all of the world. If God became man, everything else makes sense. None of the other miracles are difficult. If we have an incarnation, it all makes perfect sense. Jesus lived his life, and during his life, you see the baptism by John the Baptist who proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the miracles that he performed, his ministry and his teaching, and his temptations where he quoted scripture to resist the devil's temptation for him to become a spectacular son rather than a suffering servant. You look at the transfiguration where we get a glimpse of his glory, his ministry of healing, his ministry of proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here, all the way to the point of death, obedience to death on a cross. Jesus died. He died for us. He was buried. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. And after he rose again, he ascended. He didn't want sign seekers. He didn't want a geographic center. He rose to heaven so that we would disperse with the gospel message to the ends of the earth. He gave us his spirit to live within us to accomplish that message. And Jesus Christ is preparing a place for us. He will come again one day. He will come back for us. And when he comes back for us, he will set everything right. We have the truth. We have a God that loves us. We have the greatest message in the world. What are we doing with it? challenge you today take the truth of Jesus wherever you go with tears in our eyes compassion in our hearts speak the truth in love tell others about the God that loved them and died for them let's be ambassadors for Jesus fully divine, fully human, who humbled himself for our behalf and God has exalted him, who provides salvation by grace through faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, dear Jesus. Father, we thank you that you did not consider equality something to be grasped, but that you did set it aside. God, we thank you for sending your son God, we thank you for living a life on this earth, dying a death for us, for giving us your spirit. Lord, may we never take it for granted. Lord, may we never be slow to defend your truth. But with the right attitude, with the right heart, with the right intent, Lord, help us to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, help us not to be concerned about what culture may say when they point fingers at us, when they call us names. Lord, help us to follow you and to follow you alone. Lord, help us to resist temptation, to avoid the devil, to flee from sin. Lord, help us to run hard and fast after you with a passion in our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a love and concern for those who do not know you as Savior. And Lord, we pray that you will grant us in our day a great revival, a great awakening where we may see people come to know you in your name, praise for you are great and worthy to be praised. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. You are dismissed.